Howdy, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Molecule to Market. I'm not sure if I've said the word howdy before, but nevertheless, there is a first time for everything. So, another fun episode today, and we welcome back the delightful Mr. Jim Miller, industry guru and industry consultant. Jim has been on the podcast a number of times, and I believe this was his third outing where he was kind enough to share his thoughts on the CDMO and CRO space as we reflect back on 2022. And also he shares his words of wisdom, Mystic Miller, as I've called him, on the title uh, with respect to what he thinks will happen in the year ahead. So some interesting takeaways for you guys if you're doing some strategic and financial planning work for the next year or so. Uh, Jim starts out talking about the kind of various and numerous macro factors impacting the industry right now. And then we boil it down to the three most important ones that he thinks will be impacting the space. So listen out for that. Um, we all, we off, obviously talk about the biotech uh, funding challenge in the capital markets and how that's starting to impact the CDMO and CRO space. Uh, Jim mentioned lessons and learnings from the financial crash a, a decade or so ago and and again we'd explore what companies can learn about how we adapted then and how that might be valid today naturally we cover the m a space and less deals happening in the market different perspectives on cash and, and m a and uh, what jim expects to see is a bit of a cooling uh, of valuations and there's really interesting conversation where we talk about the importance of financial stability and a solid balance sheet for companies as uh, a more important selection criteria for buyers. And the final thing to look out for uh, right at the end of the podcast, I asked Jim kind of as we look ahead into trends in the future, you know, where would Jim place his attention in money if he was running a CDMO? And he had a, a fascinating answer, actually, it wasn't the answer. I was expecting. So hopefully this is a nice kind of wrap up of some of the key things we've seen as the market has shifted over the last six months or so and how we are viewing the world going into the year ahead. Uh, And for background, you know, Jim is a renowned expert in the space and a regular speaker at the majority of the big trade conferences, including CPHI worldwide. He made his name in the sector after founding and growing FarmSource with his wife, Judy, an online database on biopharma intelligence before selling the business to Global Data. Uh, today, he is an industry consulting and regularly writes for leading industry publications, including the likes of DCAT in FarmTech. Beyond that, actually, he's just a great guy and someone I hold a huge amount of respect for. Uh, and I was really delighted that he could come back on and share his uh, kind of insights with all of you guys. So beyond that, thanks as always for listening. We appreciate your ears and your attention. Appreciate you have a lot of competition in the podcast world. So we love the fact that you decide to listen to us uh, and we adore you for it as always if you like the podcast please share with a colleague or a contact and give us a nice rating on spotify apple google podcast wherever you're listening right town 
right now. Thanks as always to my team, Tony, Hannah, Gemma, Roxana, uh, for pulling this together. It doesn't happen all by magic. Uh, and beyond that, um, if I don't speak to you beforehand and this podcast comes out probably between Thanksgiving and the festive season, wishing you and your families a fantastic Uh, festive season whatever you're doing and happy holidays i look forward to speaking with you all seeing some of you as well at the events next year and thanks again for listening and for all your kind feedback take care and enjoy today's show mr jim miller welcome back to molecule to market thanks Ramon. it's uh, great to uh to speak with you again you are our first hat-trick guest the third time you have been on so um i'm certainly very Honoured to have you on as a guest again, Jim, to share your thoughts and industry insights. But before we get on to the juicy stuff where we think about the review of, of 22 and look ahead to 23, I suppose, what have you been up to, Jim? It's been a few months since we've spoken and, uh, and obviously I follow your good work on the DCAT website, but give our listeners a bit of an overview of what life looks like for, for Jim at the minute. Yeah, life for Jim is is probably... 70% retired and 30% you know actively involved in the industry um I'm on the board of directors of societal CDMO which is a publicly traded uh solid dose CDMO here in the US and um on the advisory board of C squared pharma which is a uh, generic API uh, uh supplier uh headquartered in Ireland so those things keep me busy. And then um, very involved with DCAT, um, particularly the DCAT Research and Benchmarking Committee, where I'm uh, helping to run a study uh, this year on um, kind of uh, how uh, sourcing and supply chain management is evolving uh, in the pharma industry. So uh, those, those are the main things. I do a little consulting here and there, but those are the main things that uh, keep me busy these days and keep me engaged in the industry. Good stuff. And we are all certainly grateful and pleased you are still with us in the industry. And even 30% of Jim is better than no percent of Jim, the way I look at it. So I'm uh, very pleased that you're here with us today. So Jim, I'm going to rewind back to the start of 2020. Um, 2022, sorry, you you wrote an article about, you know, good momentum for CDMOs going into into the year ahead. And then a couple of months later, I think it was April, it was just after the DCAT show in in New York, you you um, highlighted some headwinds for the sector, certainly the CDMO space in terms of various factors, you know, um, higher, hiring lead times, supply chain issues. Uh, you know, a reduce a reduction on COVID vaccines. Obviously, the conflict in Europe as well. So, reflecting back on the fantastic article that you wrote in in April, it seems to me like you flagged things pretty early on and, and were were spot on. Talk to us about how things have moved on since then, and was that was that article right and timed right, and has everything kind of proved to be to be the case? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I wouldn't claim to have have been uh, clairvoyant there. I mean, there, <laughs> the trends were, were already underway, but I, it's been really interesting to me that um, you, you know this. I think we tend to think of the pharma industry as being, um, uh, you know, k- kind of um, immune to 
broader macroeconomic trends. Um, and um, it, to some degree for the product side of it, uh, the, you know, the companies make, uh, you know, selling the medicines and developing the medicines, there, there's well, particularly selling the medicines, there's some truth to that. But, um, you know, I think for the CDMO industry that what's happening in the macroeconomic environment and the financial environment is really impacting uh, the CDMO industry to a considerable degree and and probably even more so than, uh, than I anticipated uh, uh, back in April. Um, you know, the, the developments, whether it's interest rates, uh, challenges in raising money, um, you know, the strong dollar, uh, the labor shortages and supply chain challenges, the geopolitical developments. I mean, there's a lot going on in the broader economy. And I, I would say that the CDMO industry is is feeling that, you know, every one of those major, uh, major developments. Would you say the industry is feeling one more than the other and let's talk about the macro factors first i'm gonna come down a bit into the in the biotech space in a moment but you mentioned several i suppose key macro trends there in terms of you know the dollar the geopolitical interest rates uh, supply chain issues are there a couple of those that you see from your vantage point that are particularly impacting the CDMO suppliers in in the industry. Yeah, well, well, certainly, you know, the number one thing we would think about has been, um, you know, the financial environment in terms of higher interest rates, um, a much greater degree of risk aversion by investors than we saw certainly over the last ten years, um, and. Um, you know that that's really um, uh, you know that's that's impacting the industry in multiple ways. First of all, because it's becoming harder for emerging biopharma companies to raise money, um, you know that that's beginning to be felt in the CDMO industry because that's an important part of of their mix of their cl- customer mix. Um, and, um, you know, for, for certainly a lot of the smaller CDMOs, it, it's often the emerging biopharma companies that are the most critical customers. But even for the biggest players in the industry, um, you know, 20, 25% or so of their uh, customer base and the revenue flow comes from uh, the emerging biopharma companies. And as those companies either have problems raising money or are afraid that they're going to have problems raising money um, over the next six to 12 months, um, they start to cut back on their spending. You know, you're seeing uh, companies abandon parts of their pipeline, um, you know, close down altogether in some cases. Um, it's, um, so, you know, it's, it's not a, if you will, a a tsunami of bad news at this point, but it's, it's similar to what we saw back around the time of the global financial crisis, where, you know, worry about 
how am I going to replace this dollar if I spend it? Um, you know, has become a big factor in in decision making. And so we've gone from a period where, you know, financial markets were, you know, there was a lot of money sloshing around that just had to be put to work someplace. And and frankly, a lot of good money followed bad money in terms of, you know, investing in very marginal candidates and marginal companies. Well, you know, a lot of that money is dried up now. And yeah, for CDMO, that's important because, um, you know, even if a candidate has low probability of success, the fact is, if you're doing phase one or phase two work, you know, you're probably going to get the opportunity to work on that that uh, that candidate, even if it ends up dying, but it's still important to your business. Um, you may be agnostic about the outcome, but but you know, you want you want the opportunity. And so, you know, that, that's, um, so that's the first thing is that, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it's hurting the demand side. Um, and, um, you know, the second impact is particularly because of high interest rates, but also because of risk aversion by lenders like big banks. Um, it's really, uh, resulting in a slowdown in merger and acquisition activities. And, you know, I did have a chance to talk to a few private equity guys at, at uh, CPHI last week. And, you know, they're really pulling in their, their, uh, their horns and they're really kind of focusing their efforts on uh, making sure that companies in their portfolio are, are, are in good shape, uh, you know, are, are strong financially, and they're not really looking to do deals, even though they may have a lot of a lot of uh, cash in the bank that they could be investing, um, because they, you know, it's a very difficult environment for them to raise uh, to raise debt. Um, you know, they're they're very reluctant to do deals. So the the level of, of M and A activity in the CDMO industry is down. Um, and is likely to be down for for some time, uh, given the high interest rates. So, um, you know that I think that that's the second uh, the second impact. And then ultimately, um, I would say the third impact is going to be in capital uh, expenditures by CDMOs. You know, CDMOs were you know uh, investing in new capacity at a pretty rapid clip. Um, there up until, you know, six, eight months ago, um, you know, particularly for cell culture and fill finish, injectable fill finish. Um, and that's really going to slow down now because, again, the cost of capital is so high that that investment is now becoming much more expensive and it becomes a little harder to justify um, in, a, uh, in a softer demand environment. So, um, you know, it's 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 always been the case, and always a little strange to me that CDMOs have probably had a higher cost of capital than most of their customers did. Um, but because cost of capital overall was so low, they could continue to make those investments. But now we're in a period where cost of capital is very high. It's especially high for a lot of the CDMOs, um, and um, 
you know, so they're going to you're going to see less capex uh, by those companies, and um, or at least at a slower rate than you know we were seeing uh, again up until about six months ago or so. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think that's great, Jim, in terms of highlighting those three key issues. And I have to say, my experience in the space in the last six months, and also many of the interviews that I've done, echo a lot of what of what you mentioned there you you talked about 2008 and the, the financial crash at that time there's a lot of people listening that might not have been in the industry at that point or just have very short memories what what do you think we as a sector can learn from how the industry adapted and i suppose got through that that period of time or things that you expect, you know, not a history won't necessarily repeat itself, but I suspect there are things that you would expect to happen based on history, but also any learnings from that period that you think CDMO should be thinking about as we kind of enter this slightly rockier phase versus, <laughs> versus the, uh, the, 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 the good times, if you like, that we've had in the last decade. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I think the, the, I think one of the things we learned in 2000 in the global financial crisis was how long these these you know some of these uh, funding issues can last. Um, you know we the uh, you know the the IPO win- window shut you know in 2008 2009 and really didn't open again until 2013. So we had a period of four or five years where there were very few. IPOs, um, you know, in in the biopharma industry. So, you know, emerging biopharma companies had a difficult time um, raising money that way. <clears throat> and when that when that IPO market closes, it has an impact on venture capital because um, um, it makes it harder for venture capital companies to exit, you know, or to. Li- to, to liquefy their their investments um, and realize some of their investments, um, and so you know, typically when a company, say when an emerging biopharma company reaches a certain point with its pipeline and it's going into the clinic, and, and particularly as it gets into phase two, and so it needs a lot of money to to fund trials um, and and um, you know in, invest in in larger scale manufacturing capability, even if that's through a CDMO. Um, and if that's what the IPO process has generally been about, you know, IPOs, and then those open up, you know, access to secondary offerings and so forth, that which is where the big money is raised. And, you know, if those companies can't get into the market through IPOs, then they have a much harder time advancing their pipelines. And that in turn, is really going to impact demand um, for CDMO and CRO services. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think, the, you know, that's number one is, um, you know, recognizing that, you know, these difficult circumstances can go on for some time. Um, but, you know, there, there are offsets to that, um, certainly. Um, you know, much like that period, Say around the time of the global financial crisis, you know, big pharma needs pipeline, um, and um, 
you know, big pharma is where the big bucks are. So um, it's um, there will be there can be some offset to say a decline in IPO and venture capital monies in in the form of um, you know big pharma partnering and, and acquisitions. Um, because much like that time, big pharma needs to build up its pipeline. And um, um, this is a good time to do it because valuations have, have fallen very dramatically. And whereas big pharma was, say, a year ago, very reluctant to do deals because the valuations of these emerging biopharma companies were so huge, Um you know, today those valuations have come way down, and um, are in the eyes, I think, of, of uh, the big pharma companies, you're much more reasonable and much more attractive. So, um, you know, you will see big pharma money come in. Um, you will see, um, you know, private equity firms, which you know historically you know, invested primarily in more mature companies with a lot of physical assets, um, you know, that they could put a lot of debt on. Um, you know, those companies have become more significant participants in financing uh, early or certainly mid-stage biopharma companies. They have a lot of cash uh, available. And so we've seen more activity from those companies um, in, you um, um, and, and f- helping to finance the industry. Um, and, and once again, you know, it's not that venture capital firms don't have money. They've, they've had a lot of success in, um, um, in raising new pools of, of capital for investment. It's just that, um, y- you know, they're, they're, they've sharpened their pencils a lot versus, uh, you know, say the, the previous 10 years and are being more selective about what they invest in. So, um, you know, that's what I expect we'll see. You know, I think it'll become more important for, uh, you know, buyers of CDMO services to look hard at the financial condition of um, of their CDMOs to make sure they have the financial strength to, to go through a, a difficult period. I mean, we... Back in the in the global financial crisis, we had a number of CDMOs that either folded or were kind of hanging on by the uh, by their fingernails, and um, you know uh, that's I think everybody's learned the value of having a strong um, a strong balance sheet and and managing their costs, um, and there's so, certainly that awareness now, and I think they're also backstopped more by. Uh, there's a lot of investors, private and public, who still went into the CDMO industry. And so there'll be capital available. It'll be more expensive. But, um, um, you know, I still think that the buyers want to, you know, make sure they do their due diligence. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. On that final point there around the stability of CDMOs and I suppose the diligence that buyers look before selecting CDMO partners. In your experience, is that 
is that a set of criteria that ultimately leads clients towards the bigger, more established CDMOs, the thermos, the catalysts, you know, of this world, as opposed to say the smaller, more agile, um, even independent or private equity held businesses, or I suppose you know, where, where it, just from last time, do, do, does that business tend to go to those bigger companies, and therefore there are less opportunities for some of the smaller companies to to play for? Yeah, it, it's an interesting point. I think the first thing I would say is I, I think a lot of companies have historically, a lot of buyers have historically been somewhat remiss in the the quality of due diligence, the financial due diligence that they do. Um, you know, so they'll they'll do their quality audits and and uh, you, you know they'll, they'll decide you know are these people that we want to work with in terms of just interpersonal dynamics and so forth. But, um, you know, at, at best, the, the due diligence, financial due diligence is often somewhat cursory. So, um, um, you know, I, I would say first thing is, is that that's often not. Uh, um, a key, like a key buying. Yeah, criteria. right. Yeah, they, yeah. Probably, they probably haven't thought about it as hard as they should. I suppose my observation is that might come up the list now. <laughs> you know, that might notch its way into number three or four of the list of you know quality and track record and capabilities. And but, but remember, you know, there's a on on the other side, on the sell side, you know, you have a similar issue. You want to make sure your customer can pay the bill, and you know, and and if if um, you engage, uh, you know, you sign on to what you expect to be, say a 12 month program of, of, you know, phase one supplies or phase two supplies, you, you know, you want to make sure that the customer is in a position to fulfill the contract and, and to pay the invoices when they're, when they're generated. So, um, you know, that, that's a two sided, uh, two way street. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. It's, it's very much a, a two way street. And now, and I think in terms of, um, you know, does it favor the big guys over the over the smaller guys? Not necessarily. Um, um, you know, the, particularly in in recent years. Um, you know, I, I I would say it certainly would be the case probably that a lot of the bigger pharma companies are going to pay more attention to that and maybe more favorably disposed to to some of the larger CDMOs. Um, in terms of who they work with. But, um, you know, it's also been the case that, um, you know, the bigger CDMOs have only been willing to take on a small number of emerging biopharma company customers. You know, they, they've, they've got bigger fish to fry. And, and frankly, if you're a $5 billion CDMO, you know, a, a small phase one project for a, a, an emerging biopharma company is probably even that that isn't particularly interesting to you. It doesn't move the needle. It, you know, um, you know, one percent growth for a five billion dollar company is a fifty million dollar. You know, you need, the, you know, that that's fifty million dollars of, of revenue you need. Um, plus, uh, you know, the numbers are just so big at some point that, um, you know, what you're going to end, smaller companies are going to end up 
working with smaller CDMOs just because the bigger companies are are going to be not so willing to deal with them. Yeah. And you mentioned before, Jim, I just want to rewind back about the M&A piece and the deals and, and the slowdowns. I know when we spoke spoke last summer, actually, when you came on the podcast last, I think we talked about, I think there'd been already 30 plus M&A deals in this space and some really large ones in this sector uh, and lots of encouragement just generally as we as we looked at the space uh, you know, a year ago. You mentioned at the start you'd expect to see, you're seeing or expect to see a bit of a slowdown just in terms of the quantity of the M&A deals. So would you also expect to see a bit of normalization in the valuations and the multiples that we're seeing? Obviously, we've seen some pretty insane multiples in the last few years. Do you see that slowing down and just lowering back down to probably in 2020 levels? Or do you think, you know, there'll be less deals, but more value? Or I suppose another way of asking is, are there going to be some bargains out there for companies to go shopping and, and pick up some uh, some slightly more cost-effective looking deals? Well, certainly, you know, we would expect to see valuations come down. And I would certainly expect them to come down much more than, you know, well below what they might have been a year ago or even two years ago. I mean, look at what's happened to cattle and stock price recently. Um, you know, they reset their, I mean, they were already getting knocked around a bit, um, but they, you know, they came out with revised guidance when they announced their first quarter results uh, a few weeks back. And, you know, their stock price today is about one third of what it was a year ago. Um, so they lost two thirds of their market value. Um, you know, of their public market value. Now, you know, that's probably an extreme case and probably, uh, you know, I think extreme low valuations are probably no more justifiable than extreme high valuations. But, um, but the point is valuations have come way down and, and market sensitivity to, you know, valuations, to guidance, uh, to expectations about the next several years in terms of revenue and profit growth and and so forth. Um, you know, the, the, the stock prices are very sensitive to that. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, at best, there's a lot of uncertainty about what the next few years are going to hold, uh, you know, what they hold in that regard. So, um, yeah, I would expect valuations to, to come way down and, um, yeah, at least to much more reasonable levels. Um, um, and, you know, and, and I mean, but we still see deals happening. It's, you know, the ideal, uh, you know, and I think of, of um, you know, Catalan's acquisition of metrics, um, you know, this year. I mean, that, that was a pretty sizable deal. Yeah. 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 It was a sizable for, for a, you know, which basically a solid dose company. Um, so, um, and and they're a very good company. Um, and um, you know, not to take anything away from Metrics, they're I think they're they're an excellent company. Um, and um, but it it's um, 
you know, that, that, that was, there are a lot of circumstances surrounding that, but that was, uh, that suggests that was a very hefty price that, that was paid. So, but that's probably going to be the exception rather than the rule these days. You know, I do think you know, you'll still see smaller, you know, what people typically refer to as bolt-on deals. You know, they're, they're not going to be a big platform deal like, um, you know, somebody buying uh, Cambrex or, or uh, MRI or, or something like that. Um, you know, that, you know, buying a big billion dollar plus CDMO um, as a platform acquisition, you, you'll see, but you'll see smaller deals where people will be adding a capability that, uh, you know, or a geographic location that they don't have. So you'll see more, you'll see those. So a, a good time for buyers, a slightly less good time for sellers, and unless you have got really niche-specific technology, maybe even in the selling gene therapy and mRNA space, the kind of sexy end of the market at the minute, I think is probably the, the rest of the valuations you expect to level out, which, yeah, I I agree. I have to say, I think the valuations have been pretty monumental in the last few years. So I think um, it was funny, we did an M&A podcast a couple of years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, and I remember one of their guests on that uh, used to work for Resi Farm talked about that they expect them to come down in 18 months. And here we are <laughs> almost at this point. And I know we've only got another kind of five or six minutes left, Jim. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was when you came on last time, we had a really, you gave some really interesting insights into, I suppose, the impact of COVID on on the sector, both from both from the the perspective of COVID has obviously given the space a bit of a bounce, just purely because of the, the nature of the volumes of the of the vaccines. But also, one thing you talked about was that you saw a bit of a backlog of clinical trials and the potential for the need to prepare for future pandemics. So if we if we look at the sector through the lens of COVID in terms of the slowdown or the come down from the vaccines, but this idea that we're going to have to be prepared for future pandemics and we're dealing with a backlog of clinical trials, uh, do you believe those are have come to fruition or continuing to come to fruition or still will happen? Or uh, do you think the kind of the bounces come and gone and we're back into normality now? Oh, well, we're certainly not back to normality. And, you know, there's still a lot of hangover from, um, you know, from the impacts of COVID. So, you know, there, there are still labor shortages um, uh, that, that impact uh, clinical trials, uh, that impact CDMOs. I mean, you know, labor shortages and supply chain problems you know, continue to to impact the CDMO industry and their ability to 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 get uh, product, you know, clinical trial material or whatever, you know, into the clinic. So you have those issues, um, you know, and um, so that continues to be a problem. You know, access to patients continues to be an issue, um, in part because. Hospitals and, and other clinical sites are very short of staff themselves. Um, so that's hurting recruiting for clinical trials. Um, that, that's a big deal. Um, and, um, you know, something like, uh, you know, the 
the, the geopolitical situation. You know, Ukraine was a major site for particularly, and, and Russia were important uh, regions for clinical trial activity. Um, you know, that hasn't come to an absolute halt, but, but you know, obviously it's much more difficult to run trials there than, than it was uh, two years ago. That has uh, you know, that's having a lot of impact, not two years ago, five years ago, but, um, you know, that's having a lot of impact. Um, so it's, um, you, you know, the, the, the clinical CROs are reporting pretty good results. They continue to have, you know, to grow their backlogs of trials, particularly for say larger phase three trials. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's a challenge uh, you know that that aspect of of uh, you know running uh, clinical trials is 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 still really hard. Um, you know the, it still faces a lot of hurdles, um, and um, so we're we're hardly back to normal. And um, you know just one other thing about in terms of the impact. You know certainly you know companies like Catalan that got got a big burst from uh, you know. Big burst and a big boost from from COVID, you know, we'll see some drop off in revenues, and that's not unexpected. Um, something I'm watching because I think it's going to be very interesting to see what the impact is that in the U.S. Now, you know, the the, the U.S. government has made f- grants of a hundred million dollars or more to f- uh, at least four injectables manufacturers to, to build new fill finish capacity. And, you know, the, the intention is that we should have plenty of capacity that if we have another pandemic, we don't run into the problems that we ran into three years ago to, uh, you know, when we didn't have nearly enough capacity to support the, the vaccine production. And, you know, there was a lot of scrambling around and products were getting replaced. Well, you know, I think we have an interesting challenge now where, you know, for, uh, you know, $500 million basically of new investment in in large-scale injectables capacity uh, has been underwritten by the U.S. government. That capacity can be, the, the terms generally are that that capacity can be used for commercial purposes but, you know, is callable in like a four-month time frame um, if we need it for a national pandemic response. Um, but in the meantime, that's, that's a lot of capacity that's going to get dumped on the market um, as that, you know, as that, you know, if it's not absorbed by a pandemic, which would be great um, if we could avoid that, um, could really play havoc with with the supply demand balance and the injectables uh, part of the market. So, um, you know, that's that is, if you will, an, an overhang or, or or an impact of of COVID that it will be interesting to watch over the next few years to see what impact that has on the industry. Fantastic perspective as always, and I think some real insight there into what may happen in the next year. And I suppose my final question following that same thread, Jim, is a lot of our listeners will be in commercial and operational teams, even senior management teams, CEOs of CDMOs and CROs. You know, 
thinking about the year of the head and where to place bets and what trends are likely to be on the horizon. Appreciate we've covered a lot of ground in terms of macro and that final point there, if you look at the US government is is incentivizing sterile fill finish and sterile injectable facilities. What I suppose where would you place your bets in terms of, you know, good capability areas and key trends as we look into the year ahead that, you know, if companies are in their strategic planning process, you know, people will be less willing to take risk, I suspect, given all the macro factors. So where would you place your bets on, you know, where if you had 50 million, 100 million or whatever to spend next year, what, what, where would you place your money in terms of a, a good place to be in the CDMO and CRO space? Wow. Um, I saved the best question question till the end, Jim. I wanted you. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's um, you know it, it's uh, you know I, I I yeah the industry tend I, I know everybody tends to follow you know technologies you know API type technology cell and gene therapy mRNA oligos or or somewhat hot these days, so they're still pretty niche. Um, um, you know, I, I think um, if I were running a CDMO today, I, I, I'd really be looking at um, operations, uh, my operations, and saying, how do I make my operations more efficient, more effective? Um, how do, how do I... Um, improve uh, my service levels to customers, um, you know, the, the integration with, with customers. Um, you know, I, I'm much, I think, and, and you know, I, I think a lot of the opportunities are going to be in how, how do I put information technology uh, in, into my operations? Okay, whether it's, you know, in the manufacturing or the supply chain um, or the interchange of, of data with my customers, um, um, you know, automation on, on, on the uh, fill line, whatever it is. Um, it's, you know, there's, there's way too much. I think there's way too little thought given to that. Um, you know, at least publicly, you know, in other words, and the things you read about in the industry, because everybody gets all excited about cell and gene or, you know, viral vector capacity or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, there, there's, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting they, you know, that there aren't opportunities there and that there probably should be some more investment there. But, um if I was running a CDMO today, you know, I'd really be thinking hard about, uh, you know, op operational improvements <clears throat> and how I can make myself a better partner from a, and, and more integrated into my customer supply chain. That's a great um, observation, I have to say, and kind of it's not the obvious place I, I expected you to go, but... I think there's a fundamental business piece in that about, you know, just tightening the belt, being resourceful, making the most of what you get, maybe bringing some in-house technology to make 
operations more efficient and and something you said about that customer service thing and that's certainly high on my agenda of you know the classic thing of just looking after existing customers and making sure that they don't go anywhere else and there is a gold mine within existing customers so i think it's a fantastic uh, point to end our discussion and jim uh, congratulations on being the first guest to come on three times and i thank you so much uh, for sharing your wisdom your insights and trends i know this will be a popular episode so as always thanks thanks for being a, a guest on molecule to market it's always uh, a pleasure to talk with you it's always thought-provoking and and uh I always enjoy the opportunity. So thanks for inviting me again. Thanks, Jim. Hi again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.